My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is Tull Price, co-founder of Fight Footwear. Tull and I discussed starting a streetwear brand before he was 20, pioneering laceless sneakers at Royal Elastics, finding joy in life struggles, loving beginnings, and learning from the past to create a more sustainable future. You are like a shoemaker, you know, a designer, but for me, you are a a part of my culture and youth and also something, you know, I really love and admire because you've created so many brands that I have this strong identity with that are more than what they were. Like, you know, we can talk about Royal Elastics later, but like making that and, and I remember, you know, before we started recording, I was in a band and we all wore royal elastics because we were we thought we were cool when we were <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to hear it's good to know there are still some people out there oh you yeah. know i feel like we're i don't know if we're dying off but we're definitely getting out of the age range where i run into less and less people who have a memory of that time or of that product or brand yeah well let's jump back so you're you, you're originally from australia but where in Australia? Because that's like... Yeah, you know, I grew up... I was born in um, Sydney, Australia, in and around what most people would probably know as Bondi. Um, you know, European family, though, German, Polish, Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, was in Australia for about five years, and when I was five, we actually moved to Israel, lived there for three, Whoa. three and a bit years, and then we moved back to Australia and more or less remained in Australia until after I finished school. And then um, at, a, at a pretty young age, after finishing school, seven, 18, 17, 18, started really venturing abroad and pretty shortly after that started living in America and in London. Oh, so, so you were, you know, you start school, but like was, because I feel like Australia is this country but people that I talk to from Australia are like, yeah, but it's like a bunch of other little countries inside it. Because, you know, Sydney itself is this, you know, cultural icon of all these different types of, uh, you know, from liberalism to to just this welcoming and, you know, beautiful lifestyle of amazing coffee and surfing and this, you know, this uh, gregarious, the whole world through there. But, you know, Israel, that's a Big, big difference. Where did that come from? Yeah, well, my parents were quite Zionistic, and um, they believed that, well, my father in particular, they believed that that's where we should live. And um, so we made what they call Aliyah, which is you go and to live in Israel. But, um, you know, long long story short, we had left behind my mother's parents in Australia who were survivors of the Holocaust and the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and it created a lot of difficulties and tension. And so after a few years, we decided to move back. Right. Yeah. Well, we can skip over that. Yeah. Because that sounds maybe not fun for everyone <laughs> yeah, to need sure. to listen to too much. But. So you're back in Australia. And what, does, what pushes you to, to leave the country? You know, I think, you know, a couple of things. One, I think the moving at an early age, that bug never left my system. Mm-hmm. It kind of got in and... Um, so I always had the feeling of, you know, wanting to get out and be free and roam. That was mm-hmm. one. Australia is a, is a wonderful and amazing place, but it is at the other side of the world. And also, you know, Australia to a great degree, 
or I mean almost in its totality at the moment, although it doesn't have to be, you know, is also built off the culture of other places, you know, be it the English, you know, who sent, sent us there in the first place, mm-hmm. um, or, or American culture. So in a way, I think growing up in Australia, you have a lot of American influences and you have a lot of English influences, and yet you're far away in some other part of the world in a very distant thing not really getting you're getting a throw off of those experiences instead of actually dwelling in those experiences and i think that also drew me away mm. so where was the first place you go to the states or london when i um it was actually just prior to starting uh royal elastics we um we started to travel mainly to london I did come through America, but mm-hmm. mainly to London. And the first place I actually went and lived on my own was then London. And I was there for a couple of years. And then I came over to America and then went back to London and then came back to America. Oh, wow. So you've really lived out of a suitcase quite a bit. I have moved around a lot. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I've spent, you know, in, in a way, 22, 23 years, maybe even 24 years on, on the road in a way. Yeah. So I want to jump to London because London was where I first, you know, I heard about Royal Elastics in London and that was one of the brands where, you know, when you think about, because uh, London for so many people was like this birthplace of the underground cool. It was always the, the, if you know, you know type stuff. Yeah. And there was a guy that I played music with and he would always wear these shoes, these like three strap Velcro shoes. And he had told me about him. It was called Royal Elastics. And he was just like, dude, this is what everyone has out there. Can, can we just talk? Because I know, obviously, we're going to discuss fight. But like, can we just discuss a little bit about how Royal Elastics started? Yeah, definitely. When I finished, I finished high school in 1993. And by the beginning of 94, I had actually already started, I guess you would call it a streetwear label. It was called Naked. And we used to make printed T-shirts. and girls printed dresses and a whole bunch of stuff like that and in making that I wanted to see what was going on and I actually took a trip to London late 1994 and I started to see friends of mine over there who were like up and coming DJs I guess Mm -hmm. they started moving from carrying their records in a record case to what was more of a courier bag and I was like oh that's kind of cool and so then when I got back to Australia, I was like, oh, maybe I'll introduce that into the clothing line. Mm-hmm. And so I started making these crossbody kind of courier bags and selling them. And um, it was still under the same label called Naked. And um, during that, I had what I thought was another great idea, which was actually, I know, before that, there was one other idea. We were making printed T-shirts, and I thought, if I can just extend the printed T-shirt from the waist down to just above the knee for girls, mm. I could probably sell it for twice the price, which, True. which I, which I did. <laughs> and it was actually a pretty well selling hit product and I sold a lot of it. And then after that, I had this other idea. Again, this is like 1994, 1995, something yeah. like that. I was like, why is all f- girls nail polish red? You know, why can't we have pink and blue and yellow I mean, you could find some of that in like some goth stores, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't commercially available. It wasn't available on the high street and it wasn't out in the world of, you know, high-end cosmetics or anything like that. 
So I actually started to develop this multicolored nail polish underneath the same label. And just as we started to sell these are that... All, just as a side note, these are all very, very different verticals for yeah. a brand to make stuff. Yeah. This is fascinating. Yeah. So, but it was like, it was a young brand, you know, it was a youth brand. I was selling products to basically kids who are out clubbing and raving, you know, so it all kind of intertwined to make sense. It was kind of in a way built off the back of like music and nightlife culture. I started to develop this nail polish. As I started selling it, I broke up with my girlfriend at the time who had been working with me in the business. And I looked at myself and I decided, was I going to be a single straight male selling nail polish <laughs> on my own? Or, you know, should I maybe try go to university? And so at that point, I decided, let me try go to college. This is now 1996. And how old are you at this time? 20, just turned 20. Wow. So, so that's quite a bit of stuff to create right, you know, as 20 years old. Yeah, no, well, actually, it was, that was like 17 and a half. Like, I finished school at 17, so that was 17 to 20. That was those three years. And then I, I, I finished school young. And then, um, then I went to college. And during the year at college, I remember opening the pages of, I don't know what it was, Face or ID or one of those magazines and seeing... I think it was like Hard Candy, it was called, or something like that, and then Urban Decay. And these were basically the same concept, you know, to which I had had. And I was like, I could have been a cosmetic billionaire, you know, why did I give up on that? <laughs> um, and that night, I literally went to sleep. And during that night, this idea popped into my head of um, these laceless sneakers and this memory that I had of friends you know riding skateboards at a young age but never tying their laces and you know could i not create a footwear company a sneaker company which was purely based on the idea of being laceless something that wasn't really in the market at that time all there really was was the van slip on i think nike had made an aqua sock somewhere in the early to mid 80s yeah. but there was really no business being done in what I would consider to be like laceless or elasticated or whatever it was, footwear. Um, and I woke up the next morning, I thought, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Let me, let me see if I can do that. So you have all these ideas, but there's a difference in having ideas and executing on them. So, you know, you, you get an idea to make a, a shoe or a footwear company, but did you know where to go to make that? Well, it was really as simple as this. At that point, I walked into the nearest sports store, probably Foot Locker, and I started looking under the tongues of the shoes in there. I kept seeing Korea pop up, <laughs> and I was like, that must be the place. Let me work out how I can... And this is... I was 20, obviously. It's 1996. There's no real... I mean, the internet's just starting. There's nowhere to go search for it on the internet. So I just thought, you know, I better go to Korea and some, find, find a place to make me some sneakers. And so from there, you know, from there I went, you know, drew up the designs, had the concept, registered the name of the company Royal, created this adapted fleur de logo, which was something I had scribbled in my school diary for many years. Yeah. And um, then set off, like, to England and to America to see if there were, if there, there was an opportunity for this, if... Actually, the main thing, actually, I was looking for was to see if someone else was doing it. And um, what I found was that there wasn't. Um, I found that the athletic companies weren't yet really making, other than their, like, classic sneakers, you know, that 
all the b-boys and stuff used to wear they weren't really making sneakers for fashion purpose mm -hmm. um the skate brands were just starting to be consumed or had already been consumed for a couple of years in like a non-skate manner mm -hmm. so kids were wearing them as fashion but there was no real you know fashion lifestyle footwear brand in the middle and so the conclusion i came to was that you know if we can build product for that space hanging its hat on the idea of all shoes one day will be laceless um that there could be a business there and then from there went on to korea um fortunately when i arrived in korea there was a korean trade authority at the airport at that time i oh, guess pre-internet wow. pre-internet i guess maybe that's what you had to do i okay. don't know and i walked into there and they could not speak much english and i couldn't speak any korean and um but i managed to get the message across and they gave me this whole bunch of pamphlets of different shoe manufacturers and things like that then i <laughs> went from there to my hotel um and started calling these numbers and trying to talk to people and eventually i think one guy came and saw me at the hotel and another guy i managed to set up a meeting with at their not at their factory but at their office and then finally um i think it was on the weekend i got in touch with one manufacturer who turned out to be one of the original or early nike manufacturers and i think i called on the weekend and so instead of getting an employee i think i got the boss or someone who happened to be there spoke a little bit of english um they were in busan korea another part of korea mm -hmm. um set up a meeting you know my business partner at the time who was also someone my age came and joined me and i think i mean we were so we were so young and silly at the time we thought we can't go to this meeting just looking like two 20 year old kids i think we went and got some tailor-made suits somewhere nice. in korea town <laughs> i think we actually like got some rings and like put on a wedding ring to try look older oh and, so that's and, really smart good idea yeah and, and we fl we flew over and 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 met this guy and i think he thought look at these two kids still <laughs> <laughs> but like as soon as we walked into ring. that development center, I could see via the products they were making that that was really the right place. And, um, you know, eventually when I felt we had that trust, you know, we showed them these designs, which as soon as they saw it, we knew that we really had something because these were one of the major sneaker manufacturer and they couldn't get their head around this idea that it didn't have laces and how are they going to make it? And, you know, you could see that there was a challenge there that they hadn't encountered before. Yeah. And you could see that they felt the product and the design was very unique. And so they, I think, you know, that won them over, um, you know. And from there, the story is very, very long. And yeah. a lot of things happened along the way, but that's how it began. Well, we can skim through a bunch of that, but, you know, you get these shoes made. And yeah. I think the thing I want to call out is, you know, the, the DJ culture, the streetwear culture, um, all the like cool indie music culture, all of these people are wearing Royal Elastics. Yeah. You know, we were really at the beginning of like grassroots marketing and, you know, I was of the generation that I was selling it to. And, you know, I wanted to be out at those places, you know, having fun. And this was, this was a great way to do it. And, um, <clears throat> You know, I think that's one of the great things about starting a company when you're young. You know, at, at different ages, we have different things that are advantages to us or different bits of knowledge that we may know that other people don't know. And you get opportunities sometimes if you're lucky to use them. And so 
we were ourselves in that culture mm-hmm. and um you know it was just very natural you know to have friends you know in that industry that started buying and wearing the product and things like that and it really um you know just it just it really spread from there you know it was all, i was also really fascinated you know in the middle of the 90s with the idea of globalization which was really just starting to happen and you know i had this belief you know that all over the world there were kids in a lot of these major cities who although they spoke different languages and lived in different places really had similar ideas and wanted similar things and i really wanted to be part of that as well and um you know royal gave me that chance you know it gave me that chance to go around to Tokyo, London, Paris, you know, New York, LA and be part of the youth culture at that time in those places and the reason London was the home at the beginning was because I mean in the middle of the 90s London was was pretty amazing. Yeah, you I mean know, it was an epicenter. Yeah, I mean you had yeah, like when when people think of some of the great, you know, publications at the time which served as, you know, replacing the internet with you know face and and I mean even like things like Q and NME when NME's talking about yeah. like everything about it I remember buying imported magazines at my uh, at like my you know my local magazine shop and paying just tons of money to get whatever clips that I could get of Oasis or whatever that was at the time and you know also seeing Royal Elastics everywhere yeah I think especially you know like face and ID. There was even a little bit, I mean, days might have been starting or started. Yeah, I can't days, exactly remember, but really Face and ID were, you know, fantastic publications at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and it was exciting to be a part of that. I mean, once we realized that the Korean manufacturer was going to take on the business and we asked them their minimums, their, minimum, <laughs> their minimums were extremely, extremely high. And we thought, look if we commit to something too low here, they're just going to kick us out. So we, we put everything on the line and we ordered 15,000 pairs of shoes. Oh um, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Which was, which was pretty scary. And we didn't have the money to pay for these shoes, but we, we had a dream and we ordered these 15,000 pairs of shoes. I think I still have some um, left around somewhere. Dude, you should <laughs> sell them. I, I occasionally have them on eBay awards. <laughs> So we ordered these 15,000 pairs of shoes and um, the next step from there was, you know, we ordered the samples, came back six or eight weeks later, picked up the samples, went to London. And um, when we quickly got to London, we realized two or three things, you know, like face and ID were what they were. Mm -hmm. And also there was this store that had recently opened called Offspring um, and Offspring today is maybe different to what it was then. But really, Offspring was one of the other few people, um, at least outside of Japan. Japan were maybe a little bit earlier, but was one of the few people who saw the potential in fashion athletic product. And he had started really curating the buy of products from athletic brands in a more fashion manner. And so that was in my opinion, you know, probably the best sneaker store in the world at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was the place where Royal began. And we managed to get an appointment with a man by the name of Richard Wharton, who was the really the guru who really 
you know, saw that from a retail perspective. Um, so we managed to get a meeting with him. We went in, showed him the product, and right away he was like, you've got a business, and placed, I think, a 50,000 pound order, which at that time in Australian dollars was almost $200,000. It's not quite the same exchange rate today, but it was almost $200,000. And so the next thing we did was we immediately went and saw the face and ID and booked advertising because <laughs> we're like, we're going to have to sell these things. And right. that's, how, that's how that all began. That's incredible. And so, I mean, you, you get this unbelievable, you know, advertising and marketing and entrepreneurship school that you go through that you create on your own. And, you know, eventually, how, how long does Royal Elastics go until you, you, you go to the next thing? Well, we started in 1996. Okay. And um, we sold the business you know, really started to take off in 1998. Mm-hmm. So it took a little while. In 1998, we actually did, which was probably maybe the second or third, as far as I know, I could be wrong. People, someone, someone may have better facts than I do, but one of the very early collaborations, um, that non-athletic collaborations, we had a collaboration with Goldie at the time, and we made this bi-label shoe with his you know, tag at the bottom of it. And in London, that really helped get the business moving. Um, <clears throat> and that was 98. And then from there, it really started to spread across Europe and then, and then into America. And in America, we did a bunch of collaborative things early on as well with like brands like X-Large at the time and people like that. Um, and so the business ran in that manner up until about 2001. And in 2001... Um, we ended up selling uh, the greater portion of the business to um, K-Swiss mm-hmm. and remaining on um, <clears throat> to run the company. I think that was in November 2001, just after September 11. And then I stayed on for another couple of years. So I left in November 2003, I believe. And then that's so where... it's about eight years. Okay. And then that's where, obviously, you start to work on the you know, the creations of what you're doing now, right? Which is... Yeah, yeah. I had, you know, again, my initial belief, which, you know, to a certain degree is still true, although I'm doing the opposite today. But my initial belief was that, you know, one day a great portion of the footwear that people wear won't have laces. That was the belief with Royal. And then towards the end of Royal, I started seeing a whole bunch of things that I really wasn't comfortable with, you know. You know, even... It was already heading that way, but even post-selling the business to K-Swiss, who was a publicly traded company, mm-hmm. who required a certain performance and certain growth, um, the effects that I started to see on that, on how we, start, we were able to run the business and how it changed the type of products we were able to make, the type of materials we were able to use, you know, just the squeeze, the, you know, the, the requirement to squeeze to have greater margin, to sell more, to drive more sales, you know, really started sucking a lot of the creativity out of it for me. And not only did it do that, I also started to wonder more and more about these great volumes of shoes that we're creating out of these very synthetic materials. You know, where is all this ending up? And if I've got, if I'm making almost a million pairs of shoes a year, 
as little me. Jeez. But as, as little me. Yeah. And I'm getting stuck with 75,000 or 50,000 that I don't really have a home for. What's happening with the bigger brands? You know, what's going on with Nike? What's going on with Puma and Adidas? And what's going on with all these other, you know, the H&Ms of the world and just these very large scale manufacturing and that most of it, you know, almost all of it is just plastic, basically. And where is all this ending up? You know, and so that started kind of troubling me towards the end of the royal experience mm-hmm. and um at that time my feeling was was that not necessarily based on that but that the next change in trend would be for higher quality products you know products made out of athletic products made out of real materials um and so that was in about 2003 and so then when i left uh Royal, I spent time starting to learn. I'd learned about athletic shoe manufacturing, and then I spent some time learning about, you know, what I would say traditional men's footwear manufacturing and women's manufacturing, so more Italian-based yeah, footwear manufacturing. Kind of like, like air quoting here, like dress shoes and things like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So just um, I just wanted to learn about that side and see, you know, what knowledge there had been in there in the past that was getting lost that could potentially be useful to create products for the future. Such as the replaceable sole. Huh? Yeah, the replaceable sole, but just, you know, just really learning about good quality materials. I mean, I had ah. spent, I had spent my, you know, I'd spent the last years, you know, basically dealing in, in plastics. Right. Cause I, I remember, you know, well then wait, what year does, does fight launch? Does it, we actually started, there was kind of two incarnations of fight. We started in like 2005 and right. it was with my old business partner from the Royal business. And that the business ran in that form for about three years and was like, it was still conceptually what it is today, but it, it's evolved. It was, you know, a, a higher end premium material, athletic inspired footwear company. Mm-hmm. And, um, we ran it like that for about three years. We had some disagreements about how the company should be managed. I, was, I wanted to really be more focused on online and retail, but my business partner had really been the sales part of the business, so he was still very interested in wholesale. And after about three years of doing that, we decided to go our separate ways. The business more or less closed and sat dormant for a couple of years, a few years, and then... Um, my brother and I revived it together um, in the format that it's in today. So, Wait, your brother? Yeah. So you're working with the family? Yeah, yeah. Well, so something I just kind of want to want to sidebar with is, you know, you have enormous success, but with all the success that you have, it sounds like you really slam into some walls here. What, what was that doing to you mentally when, you know, you you birthed something, you created something, but you're seeing, you know, someone kind of turn it into something you don't like, and then you're starting another company, and then you're having disagreements there. Yeah, I think. Listen, a little bit. Maybe I'm a glutton for punishment. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't mind. I don't mind some challenges. You know, for right. me, that's what keeps life interesting. Um, you know, I I enjoy the challenge. I enjoy the. You know, I enjoy the challenge. I enjoy the struggle. For me, that's the that's the funnest part. You know, um, so it doesn't mean I wanted things to not go well, but yes. but that is that is what that is what happens. And you know, for me, often you know, my motivation is not 
you know, the financial side of things is not my motivation. You know, for me, when companies get to a certain size, they become, I mean, maybe people who are smarter than me can do it better. But once companies get to a certain size, they become more and more about management and more and more about dollars. And that's not really what I enjoy. I enjoy the entrepreneurial part of the business. Yeah, I enjoy trying to get some, you know, I also enjoy being earlier on the curve than, than later, you know, and the, you know, they say the first one through the door gets the bullet, you know? So I guess that's happened sometimes in my business experience. Um, but that's what I enjoy. Right. Right. Hey everyone. I want to take a second to talk to you all about 316 and thank them for supporting the podcast this week. Right now, more than ever, you want to support a brand that not only makes good stuff, but cares deeply for others. And I'm constantly inspired by how 316 runs their business and creates their products. From how they interact with their customers to take care of their suppliers and employees. Some brands do well, but 316 does better. 316 make phenomenal jeans in the USA with custom denim from Japan. I wear their CT custom taper model. It ticks every box for me. It's a higher rise and a subtle taper. It's the perfect jean for a sport coat or a classic tee. Speaking of tees, they also make amazing tees. Check them out and see why the Wall Street Journal recommends them for their perfect fit and length. Visit 316.com to learn more and stay tuned for an upcoming project we're working on just for listeners of the show. That's the number three, S-I-X-T-E-E-N.com. So Fight comes out and this, I remember so many people were just very, myself specifically, really caught off guard with this shoe that's, it's a sneaker, but it's a dress shoe. And, you know, you were way up on the, you know, the air quote sustainability and reusability stuff way before any of these other, you know, geez, all birds, whatever. Like, you know, and what you were making was so interesting and exciting in the sense that you had this cork footbed, but you had this replaceable sole. Like, wh- where did all of that come from? Really, that's all pulled out of, you know, tra- traditional bespoke handmade shoemaking that I learned about in Italy. You know, really, that's where all of that comes from. You know, basically, the, I mean, the evolution of manufacturing and design evolves around different things in different ways. But a lot of the time it's, you know, to make things cheaper. Mm. Um, And so there was a period prior to people scaling businesses as much where they were really just focusing on trying to make the the best product they could with what they had available. And um, Fight uses a lot of those old skills and old techniques, which are more expensive, but make a better quality product. In, in, in my opinion, I mean, there's different, I guess people have a different idea of what quality is and what quality isn't. But, sure. you know, we're trying to make products that have great depth and integrity to them and age beautifully. That's what, um, you know, that's what, that's what fight's about. Um, and so there's a lot of tricks in manufacturing that started being used very much in the 70s and 80s and 90s that often were just used to make things more cheaply weren't necessarily in order to make a better product. And so we don't use any of those. Well, it's like, you know, sometimes the the cutting of patterns in shoes, you know, people cut, 
you know, people add more patterns to shoes or the one of the reasons it was done was because you get better yield out of the material. You know, Fight makes shoes out of one piece of leather. It's a very, very big pattern. So the yield on that is not fantastic. And so it's more expensive. And <clears throat> you can only really make sh nice shoes out of a one-piece pattern if you're using a very high-quality material. If you try to do it out of a low-quality material, the shoe just looks like a mess. So there's all these things that you know, people do within manufacturing that sometimes it improves the product, sometimes it's just because you're able to make more money and then you can market it you know, very well to make it seem like it's actually better when it may not be. Right. Yeah, because, I mean, the, your, the design of all of Fight's footwear is extremely clean. There's, there's no, yeah, like, you know, you were saying with all these extra patterns, you don't have big logos, you know, you don't really have any yeah, logos. There's, no yeah, there's, there's no unneeded seams. Yeah. Like, if we don't have to, if a shoe's going to, you know, feel nicer without a seam, we won't put a seam there. You know, but often that is done because to save money or because the maker making the product isn't skilled enough to use that material because it's a lower quality material without putting a seam there. Um, yeah, sometimes it's design and, you know, sometimes it does make something look nicer and other times it's, you know, it's financial constraints. Right. So basically fight is, is almost the the response of what you get from designing with all these, you know, marginal monetarily constraints into making something that is just fully formed and just like, you know, little beautiful pieces of art. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, because, you know, the world does revolve so much around dollars and cents and that's how business has become fight, not making products in those way makes it unique and special, which is an opportunity in itself. And <clears throat> I also found, you know, along the path to making, you know, my, the aim with fight was to make the best product possible. It wasn't to make something sustainable. I wanted to only make the best product possible, but within that process, I found that there are a lot of benefits Mm -hmm. um, so in a way, I guess, you know, fight is a bit more like the, uh, you know, farm to table restaurant, you right. know, good produce, good quality, well looked after it, not made in, not made in mass, you know, not using huge pesticides and things like that, but a great, you know, you feel fulfilled at yeah. last, it stays with you. You're not, um, you know, eating something that's just full of sugar and carbs and need to eat again shortly after. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, you know, when Fight comes out, you know, the, uh, over the years, you know, you start to see it. Like, you know, the, there's like the nice sort of trickle of seeing, you know, oh, that guy's wearing, what are those shoes? Those are interesting. Oh, these are, you know, and one of my really close friends, I'm sure he's listening to this, um, I remember he went and bought Fight, uh, a pair of the, the Navy shoes at your retail store. So and in I New was, York or yeah. In, yeah, and I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. So wait, so you're making these shoes, but where does the concept of retail come in? Because that that's a big step, and and I definitely don't think that's something that you know your previous projects had. 
actually towards the end of Royal, we started opening up some retail stores. Oh, but oh, excuse me. But no, but it was, you know, I, I, I'm not re- really a retail person. I'm much more of a product and brand person. But the um, towards the end of Royal, we, there were some stores that did start opening up. Um, and so I had saw a little bit of it there. And then actually at the very beginning of Fight, we started by opening a store in Sydney, which is, which is still there today. It's a very little shop. Um, but uh, it's still there today. And so that was there early on. But yeah, then we did open the Prince Street store. I don't know what year it was, 2011 maybe? Yeah, it was early. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. 2011, which has been great. Well, where, where did the desire come to have a retail store though? Because that, it's a whole other type of world uh, in, in terms of like making products. Yeah, we had already had a little bit of an online business before mm-hmm. that, but you know, Fight is very much a product where it's best when you can touch, feel, and try it on. Right. You know, like you can convey it to a certain degree online, um, but online, you know, there's so many tricks that so many people use to make really shitty products look really great. <laughs> You know, so, you know, whereas fight, it's, it, it is actually the real thing. So products might look great from a lot of brands online, but then sure. when you actually go and see it and touch it and feel it, you're like, oh, this is actually garbage. But, um, but fight's kind of the opposite. You know, it looks nice online, but then when you can really touch and feel it in person, then you can really see the benefits of the human construction, the beautiful materials that are used. Um, it really comes through in that environment. And, um, the, you know, the Prince Street stores works great. Yeah. And something that, you know, that I want, I want to hit on, obviously, that we, we, we chatted about a little bit was the fact that Fights Footwear had replaceable soles and were made in the, the style of, you know, y- your, you know, the Goodyear welt. And that's something that I think, you know, I'm, I'm curious how the messaging and stuff, how people have handled that, because the shoes of you know, that where like you're, I don't know, competing with or whatever by making this sort of like tennis shoe lookalike of, you know, people get those shoes and they just, they buy them and they throw them away. But now you're having these shoes where you're like, no, wait, come back. We're going to, we're going to change the soul. We're going to add more life to that. How has that, how has that, you know, been going? Um, it's, it's been going really, really well. Um, you know, again, fights all the, the idea is, you know, you know, quality over quantity. And we want to make great products, which are not cheap. Let's be frank. They're not, sure. they're not cheap. They're great products. You pay a price for them. Um, but then they're products that last and get more beautiful. And in New York, you would actually be surprised. There's more people, I guess, even than I realize that have been used to having had great shoes in the past oh, okay. that they have resold, you know, and things like that. So there is definitely a community of people who, especially in New York, who are used to taking shoes and getting them resold. You know, the cobblestone streets here and the yeah. footpaths and New Yorkers spend so much time walking during the day. Um, so there is a relatively decent sized group of people who are used to that you know maybe they're a little bit on the older side Mm -hmm. but they're used to that so for them it's it's really natural and very seamless and then i think for our slightly younger audience you know because our audience only gets so young again that it's not such a cheap product um they've really liked it and you know i think as as you go down in age 
I don't know if it's necessarily unique to times now or always that way, but as you go down in age, you know, people tend to get a little bit more idealistic about the planet and life and what's good for it and what isn't. Yeah. And um, so they've taken very well to it as well. And they appreciate that it's not just something that's adding to landfill and that's something that can last and stick with you. Yeah. And you, you know, even, think of it like, a, I think of fight shoes almost like, you know, a beautiful piece of mid-century furniture. Right. You know, these are things that you want to stick around and take care of. Yeah. And I mean, you've even done things where, you know, I remember going by your store and you had someone there like, like sewing shoes, like, you know, doing the welts and stuff of, of shoes. And it's, yeah. When we can. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's always really cool to see that. So the team now is how many people? Because it, it's just, is it still uh, you and your including, brother? Including the hand sewers or? Oh, sure, yeah. Well, in, I mean, in, including, the, you know, we have about a team of about 50 people okay. who hand sew and hand last our shoes, which is, you know, extremely rare. It, it barely happens in the world today. There's very, very, very few places that do that. Right. I mean, even within you know, the luxury brands and even within the traditional shoe brands, generally stuff that's like hand sewn and hand lasted, you only find in their bespoke products. Right. You know, it's not in their like mainline product. It's just like a bespoke product that's maybe made to order or whatever. Um, There's a couple of people who still do it a little bit, but very, very little. And I don't think anyone has a team the size of, of ours, of, of the 50 people. So there's 50 people there. Um, hand sewing and hand lasting our products and then you know it's a small team of people i think we only have about six or seven or eight employees oh really Jeez. and then I mean, something i've seen you guys do which is you know when you think about your standard shoe company and they have you know multiple i'm just going to air quote here like drops a season and they have this and this and they have these different collections and these collections and it's been interesting to see because with fight i mean you still have the original shoe like the the the, the lace up shoe you know, I think the only new thing that I saw recently was like a hiking boot. You have a slip on, but you've always kept your your collection very, very tight. Yeah, we, we evolve slowly. We do make one or two new things maybe, or maybe three a year, you okay. know, three really new products or four new products a year. Um, but yeah, every product we make, we try produce something that is going to last. Again, it's about, you know quality versus quantity not wanting to make things and then throw them away but trying to make things that last and in all honesty any good shoe company you can only have a great shoe company that has core products that last right you know i mean even you look at nike it's the air force one you know adidas has the shelter or the stan smith or you know the, the list goes on timberland have the wheat boot you know and so i think um you know with footwear you know, footwear is a little bit more, you know, focused than what you need to be with apparel. You know, mm-hmm. I've always said it's in, in some ways it's closer to making something like a washing machine than it is a jacket. You know, it's got, it's got, you know, shape and molds and it's, it's a hard good. Um, so there's a lot of investment that goes into creating styles and that almost naturally constrains you from, from doing too much. Um, and you want to try and make stuff that is, well, at least on, on our side, we want to try and make stuff that is timeless, that does last. And so, yeah, you know, generally we try not to make a shoe that we don't believe we're going to be able to sell for at least five years, you know, ideally 10 or 15. Right. 
how did the hiking boot get created? Because I remember seeing that and being like blown away by the design of it. You know, our hiking boot is very much, you know, based on very, I'm not sure what year it was, but I guess it was between the 30s and 70s, very, very traditional Austrian, Swiss, German, handmade hiking boots of how they were made in that period. And um, ours is a little bit different, but it's very, very similar because in those times they were really still making shoes by hand and lasting yeah. them by hand. So it really has that, that character. It's, it's actually one of our best-selling products. And yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful shoe. You know, I mean, I went to, to just go look at it in person, and, and it's one of those things where, yeah, like you were saying, like the picture doesn't really do it justice. Like feeling it in your hand, you know, sometimes when, uh, I don't know if it's ever like this with you, like you, you'll, you'll go to a, I don't know, a fancy clothing store, and you see it, and you see a picture of it, and you're like, eh, and then you'll touch it, and you're like, eh, but then you'll go see something else, and you'll feel it like in your hand and you're like, wow, this, like this, this feels like what it really is. Like a a luxury product. And and wearing it as well. Like once you wear it, you see how comfortable it is for a boot of that type. And another benefit of the Goodyear construction is not just the resoling of the shoe. There's a multiple benefits it has one. Well, one is resoling. The other one is, you know, it unifies the upper of the shoe and the sole of the shoe. They actually, become one i mean it's probably hard to explain on a podcast but they become one and so when the shoe bends and flexes the sole bends and flexes it bends and flexes in the same part of the upper of the shoe Hmm. and so it makes the shoe very very comfortable to walk in and what also happens is the shoe starts to mold around your foot where your foot breaks the shoe breaks and so as time goes on it gets more and more comfortable the other th- beautiful thing that happens is that also the upper starts to collapse around the welt just a little bit. So the shoe kind of becomes more unified as time goes on. And so they get really get more beautiful as time goes on. Um, I don't know why I went off on that tangent. No, no, no. I mean, we were, <laughs> we were talking about the, the hiking boot and the, oh, yeah. the work that went into Yeah. It. So, yeah, no. So that's a, yeah, it's a really beautiful shoe and it's our most reliable product and we make it every winter. Yeah, it's great. It's perfect for New York, you know, especially the wool lined ones once it gets cold. And again, the beauty of the construction, but also using natural materials that are treated naturally, mm-hmm. um, even with the wool lined boots, they, it still breathes. So, you know, I've, I've seen I've seen crazy fight fans wear wool lined boots still in the summer and they still, you know, feel comfortable and breathable and okay. Yeah. Fight fans, is yeah. that that's the thing? <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> no. But but yeah, I have seen a couple of people do that. So you've been, you know, slowly expanding your retail and obviously, you know, your your site and stuff has grown. What are the things that you saw happen at Royal Elastics that you're determined to either make happen or not happen with fight? Well, it was definitely not getting into a position where we have to compromise the type of product we make. Right. That's that was really the main thing. You know, the main thing for me is um, really making sure that, you know, at Fight, we really only have one focus, which is trying to make the best product we can. Right. It's not built around trying to make more money. You know, it's built around, let's really do everything we can to try and make the best product. And by doing that, you know, hopefully we end up with, you know, customer loyalty and something that lasts. Right. I think that's the main pitfall, you know, that I'd 
didn't avoid the first time that I'd like to avoid this time. <laughs> right, for sure. How do you feel about VisVim? Because um, VisVim is a brand that has some of the similar things that you do, but I don't know if they are really able to carry out what you do. In no, I think I think VisVim is a is a great brand. Um, and Hiroki's extremely talented and he's done an incredible job. Like I think pound for pound, it's probably one of the best brands in the world today. Um, the products are all beautiful and authentic. I mean, I think actually when I was doing Royal Elastics, I think he was maybe involved with Burton and Gravis at the time. And so, Oh, Gravis. <laughs> oh my God. I don't, I'm not sure exactly what his involvement was there, I remember, but yeah, you know, so, so we've, we know each other a little bit, and I think he does a great job. It's a great brand. Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting to see a brand like Visvim come out in how they handle their releases because they have so many... I don't know if you're aware of this. So like, if you're in Japan, right, and a new drop, whatever, is coming out, you, um, you have to be wearing, um, like I think, three or more pieces of Visvim on you to purchase that's amazing i've never heard that before yeah and i it's you know because they're trying to fight resellers and things like that it not not so much try to make it a club so then there are people who have a trunk full of visvim clothes and they're all putting on their visvim clothes to go in and wait in line so they can resell the shoe (laughs) like you know with how resale and hype and all that stuff is kind of like infiltrated the the sneaker and the shoe and the luxury world that's something you guys have done a good job of, of people love and admire what you do, but they're not trying to go and buy your stuff and flip it. Is that intentional? Well, this, our product is, you know, very quiet. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not branded, you know, it's very simple in its essence. And so I think in a way that's maybe that, you know, there's no bells and whistles on our product. And I think, um, you know, a lot of products that go in that direction, it's, you know, because they're, they're pitched a little bit at a younger audience, you know, and, and fight, you know, really the, the core fight customer is, you know, late thirties, forties, fifties, you know, it's, Mm. it's more, it's a little bit older, it's more mature. And I don't think, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are some 50-year-olds going around flipping <laughs> product, but I think yeah. it's kind of a little bit of a younger generation. Yeah, yeah, okay. I think that um, an, an interesting conversation, though, that, um, that I think, because when I heard we were going to do this, I listened to a few podcasts. One of the ones was Chris from Union, which which I thought was good, was good and, yeah. and interesting. But I think um, the evolution of, like, streetwear is like an interesting conversation, which I think you've been spending some time on. Yeah. And, you know, really tracking what its real roots were, you yeah. know, in the beginning, I think is, is kind of interesting. And I can tell you from my side, how, how I saw it, you know, I was, I was on the other end of the world, obviously. Yeah. But um, from, from what I remember is that I think that really started you know, in New York with the rap culture, you know, taking sports classics, you know, in, into that world. That's where it kind of, I think might've begun in the beginning. Yeah. And, um, you know, whether it was, you know, zip up track suits or a pair of Puma Clydes or Adidas Sheltos or what, where, whatever it was, I think it was there. And then I think, you know, from what I remember in the, 
early 90s, you know, we were buying, you know, pieces of sportswear and kind of wearing it like streetwear, you know, even like vintage ski jackets and stuff like that. Yeah, like the, that was, you know, the, the whole like low head and low life movement of the Ralph Lauren and the polo stuff. You know, and like you had like these kind of zip up kind of motorcycle type jackets. And so I think like, you know, Carhartt, in the late 80s, early 90s, people were also taking that work wear and wearing it that way. Ben Davies, people were taking it and wearing it that way. Yeah. And then at some point, you know, I think, not sure, you know, probably Stussy, I guess, was probably the first one, even though it was a little bit more surf yeah. in- initially. Yeah. But yeah, at a point, I think like Extra Large were also early on that. I think they often get left out of a lot of those evolution of streetwear conversations, but I think they were in there. I agree. You know, and look, and I'll say it, like I think Royal for a lot of people, um, that was a big, big part of the early streetwear stuff. Um, um, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's what we were wearing. Huge. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. that was what we were wearing. I guess there was like a point where, you know, you had this like, club kid stuff yep do you know exactly. and then in the hip-hop world you had like like i said the Carhartt workwear and then the original b-boy stuff and at a point some of that started to to meld yeah in a in a weird way and maybe someone's going to hear this and correct me but something that was really cool about streetwear was um the desegregation of some sort of things that people associated that were very you know, cultural identifiers. So streetwear became more about us and it wasn't about your skin color and it wasn't about what you believed. What, you know, the, the common denominator was that you all liked clothes and you were into cool clothes and that was your crew versus, oh, that sort of hip hop air quote was, was, is African American music and that's this and, and you can't listen to that. But when it's, when everything, when, you know, specific with streetwear, that convergence of all of that stuff let everyone into it. It wasn't Aerosmith and Run DMC. It was streetwear, you know, that, that really made some of that. And I think that's something that people don't really give it enough credit for, especially now because people are just used to it being so, you know, assimilated and, and, and across the board and just given to everyone. But really bringing people together, I think streetwear does not get enough credit for. Yeah, I think, you know, anything that is... Um a little bit of an underground community, yeah. you know, always tends to do that. And definitely, you know, streetwear was unifying. You know, I think it was one of those things, like what I was saying earlier, um, you know, a cultural thing that could exist in a lot of different cities all over the world. Yeah. Even though they're not speaking the same language in terms of the words, they are signaling (laughs) the same language in terms of what they may wear. Well, and I'm sure you got a really good view of that because you were in so many of these big cities right as stuff was happening. I mean, got an amazing view of it. Yeah. yeah, I really saw a lot of that. A lot of that happen. You know, maybe I missed a couple of years. Maybe I, I don't. I can only say that I know what was going on in like New York, London, and Tokyo from like '95. I mean, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, going. I I would love to see what you know, how Harajuku was, was slowly starting up. And I'm sure you got to see oh, that. It was great. And, yeah. you know, it was, it, was, it was also so nice and raw at, at that stage. Um, yeah. You know, that's where, to me, things are always the most enjoyable, you know, that, that beginning of it, of it starting to grow and starting to blossom. And 
um, it was re- it was it was really interesting. It was it was really great to see and be a part of. Did you get to interact much with Hiroshi Fujiwara ever? No, we never crossed paths. Yeah, no. Because I know so many people really look up to him as kind of like this this godfather of Harajuku and. Well, I think was he the original person who brought Stussy into into Tokyo? I don't know if he was part of that or not. Possible. You could you could find out, but I think definitely Japan's take on American inadverted commas like surfwear to a certain degree, Stussy was you know what really one of the main things that really started to stylize you know streetwear into what it ended up becoming yeah but um but again i think also like extra large they they did they did the same thing and i think can't remember what year exactly that started but yeah you know like i said i feel they get left out of the conversation a fair bit but i do think they did some really interesting early stuff yeah um in there you also had you know there was also you know fucked they they, they yes. did some really good interesting early streetwear. Yeah. And then there was a, there was a label I remember out of LA. It was called Fresh Jive or something. Yeah. You Fresh know Jive. they they also you know made some contributions for sure. You know, um, at least to the American version. Yeah, I mean there was Fresh Jive. There was this was also you know uh, Fresh Jive. I feel like helped birth a lot of these other brands that were more of like you know Midwestern streetwear because you had. Uh, a, a brand called uh, Yaga. Which oh, I don't know that. Yaga was like, they were kind of like the graphic tee shirts. Mm. It, it always looked like yoga because, <laughs> but it was written in cursive, so no one could really tell yeah, the difference right. between the O and the A. And that kind of also helped uh, create their, there was like bum equipment, mm-hmm. which just started mm-hmm. out through there. And then also, um, I don't know if you ever remember this brand. It was called No Fear. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, but that I wouldn't. That put was that much in way. streetwear. Category. Well, but I feel like those were, and yeah, you're probably right. But I feel like those were precursors that got people interested into getting, you know, into getting deeper in the onion. Yeah, maybe some people started there and and yeah. and, and migrated into nicer design stuff. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely nicer design stuff than. Than yeah, the no fear and uh, weird little graphic tees. But did you grow up in New York or no? No, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Okay, that's why you know this stuff. Yeah, that's that's why I know the Midwest. <laughs> yeah, because for me, yeah. my my idea of like finding out what was cool. Was and of course, you also had um, even though again, it's it's different. It was more obviously in the hip hop world, but um, the Mark Echo had his whole thing, which yeah. I know isn't totally relevant to this demographic or segment we're talking about, but in the Midwest it was. Yeah. I mean, it, that was the thing is like so many people, you know, will be like, yeah, well the Midwest, there wasn't really anything there, but the Midwest had a lot of people buying stuff. That's for damn sure. You know, I've talked yeah. to people who are, you know, who are skaters and stuff and they were like, yeah, you know, LA was good, but where we really sold stuff was Chicago and Minnesota yeah. and, and, you know, um, because yeah, I mean, it was just, all these states with tons of you know consumers and they were just getting online and learning about this stuff and um and i guess also like again you have to also you know thank also the skate brands i mean Mm -hmm. did you ever they were very influential they were very influential on early streetwear i mean ccs skate catalog yeah that would get sent to you and i remember ordering stuff from them because yeah there was no up until this store called Soka that came out in St. Louis, there was really no skate brand stores that, that had anything. Um, you just, you know, I could go to Dillard's 
In a way, they really yeah. started the model of yeah. that business. Just, you know, small skateboard shops yeah. kind of started the model of what then became kind of streetwear. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Hence a supreme success Yeah, you know, in that. Okay, here we go. Hot take. What's your view on Supreme this second? They've done an absolutely incredible job. You know? Oh, okay. Yeah, it was, no, it was, listen, it was beautiful. It was beautiful to see. I remember when they first opened the store. Yeah. And um, from there, building to today, it's, it's, it's you know, one on, 101 of how to build the smartest brand in the world. And you but, know, so congrats to that. Okay. Um, no, yeah, congrats to that. Obviously now it's entered a totally different world. Yeah. And um, it's just a, I guess it is, or just will be a, just a, a huge, incredible brand. Um, you know, I, something I stopped wearing a very long time ago and buying a very, very long time ago. Why is that? Because uh, I told you I like things at the beginning. Yeah, you know, I like things at the beginning when they're a bit more raw and but see, exciting. As things get commercialized, yeah. you know, they kind of lose me. But you're the tastemaker, and I think that's the thing. Is is so the second you stop getting into something, that's a big that's a big signal. Uh, there's, I mean, listen, you know, it's yeah, it's it's gone it's gone to a different it's gone to a different place. I think. I mean, the beauty of it is though, you still look at a brand like Nike. Okay, it's you know, one of the biggest brands in the world mm-hmm. and it's still, it's still totally credible to all audiences. And right. so, you know, they've Supreme has done such an amazing job so far. You can't say that it's not possible with time that they may get that core audience back. Like it's potentially going through a phase, like, a, you know, maybe they're in their late teens, early twenties now, but when, you know, in terms of their nature, when right. they get into their early 30s again, you know, it might become interesting again for everyone, just like Nike has managed to do. That I agree with, and I would say I stand corrected. Because for me, I, I've been like, nope, Supreme's over. It's canceled. It's gone. Yeah, I think, you know, you can't always look at things just in, in the present. You know, stuff, stuff changes. You know, stuff changes. It evolves. Um, I don't know whether the people who own or are running you know, Supreme have the interest to do that, but I guess, you know, that would be the gauntlet, you know, are are they, are they, are they able to do that? You know, maybe they don't care. Maybe they do care. I mean, Nike have done it phenomenally well. Yeah, that's true. That's very good insight. Um, Toll, this is great. This is really, really good. We're good. I want to be conscious of your time. I think time, it's good. Or... I'm happy you knew you remembered some of my past. Oh, are you kidding? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm definitely one of your biggest fans. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. It's always, like I said, uh, they're not quite dying off, but it's definitely, it's definitely fading out. And um, it's, it's nice to know that some people still do remember it. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. It was good talking to you. Thanks. All right, see ya. You've been listening to Blamo. Special thanks to our sponsor, 316, for supporting the show this week. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder, editing by Brendan Finn, and we're produced by Blamo Media. Follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast and leave a review for us on your favorite podcast app. Want even more Blamo? Head over to patreon.com forward slash Blamo to join the Blam fam and get access to additional interviews, a community slack, special events, and more. And best of all, you're supporting the show. Try it. It feels good. 
Thanks, everyone. Stay safe out there, and we'll see you next week.